Well, good morning. Welcome to Apostles Houston. If you're worshiping with us on our campus or if you're worshiping at home, we're so glad that you're with us today. Uh, if you would stand wherever you are, and we're going to hear from the gospel, from the gospel of Mark, chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 13. And they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we just pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak uh, to us this morning and press it deep within our hearts that we might be shaped into the likeness of Christ and be sent from uh, this place in our time with you to be a part of your mission in the world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in a few weeks, we are going to begin a new series on the book of Daniel. And I'm really excited uh, to dive in uh, to the story of Daniel. And I think the Lord's going to use it in a really powerful way to speak to us, particularly in this cultural and historical moment. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to take a little time over the next couple of weeks and just talk about something a little lighter, a little easier. I want us to talk about politics. Um, and, and I know as soon as I say that, uh, some of you are shifting in your seats, but I just want to assure you um, that I'm not going to tackle uh, any particular political issues. I'm not going to share my particular political opinions. I simply want us to have uh, a very important and necessary conversation about how we follow Jesus in a political world. You know, a, a few months ago, a pastor friend of mine uh, called me, and he was just sharing how discouraged and frustrated he was. He had preached uh, a sermon that morning uh, trying to offer some biblical perspective on, on the issue of race and justice. And, and he told me that that afternoon he'd gotten uh, two phone calls from people in his church, both of whom said they were leaving the church in response to what he had shared that morning. One accused him of being politically progressive and unfaithful to the gospel. And within an hour or so, another call came and accused him of being too politically conservative and unfaithful to the gospel. The reality is that people are, are leaving churches, ending relationships, fighting, even within their own families, lashing out on social media. There's a hypersensitivity and overreaction from every direction. Uh, and it's because there's just this level of fear and angst and anger all around politics right now, more than I think I've ever experienced in my lifetime. And so what we see is people are just literally tearing one another apart. Everyone thinks they're right, and no one has room to think that they're wrong. And so it's this brutal and divisive environment. And sadly, uh, in the church, things don't look all that different. 
Instead of bringing the church together for a moment such as this, we've allowed this spirit of division and tribalism over politics to just seep right into the church. And so as I was talking to my friend and he was just sharing, like he's just so discouraged, he almost just wants to give up. And I, I know many of us feel that way. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. Maybe you're thinking, man, the church should just stay out of politics all together. Just preach the gospel, right? Uh, or maybe you're, you're feeling like, I'm just going to kind of check out. You know, the election's about 60 days away. I'm just going to go off the political grid. And I just want to encourage us that as followers of Jesus, neither of those is really an option for us. You know, government, and I would say politics... Uh, even as distorted and broken as it can be, is itself a part of the created order. Just look at Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2. You can see the God-ordained role of power and authority and government um, for the good of humanity. And so as followers of Jesus, we have to resist the temptation to, to kind of become jaded or cynical about politics. Uh, we have to actually think that, that, you know, through the fact that the gospel compels us, right? It compels us to, to actively engage in our democratic government and engage in politics. And so as followers of Jesus, it's, it's the gospel and the kingdom uh, that shapes every part of our life. We know that, and that includes our public life, public discourse, politics. And so we can't be passive, uh, and we shouldn't take the approach of the world to politics, uh, a win-at-all-cost, uh, an approach that doesn't have wisdom or humility uh, or faith in something bigger than ourselves. That makes navigating the political landscape as faithful, thoughtful, engaged followers of Jesus really hard. And in the coming weeks, it's only going to get harder. It's going to test our faith. It's going to test our character. And so we need to ask this question, as a follower of Jesus, how am I going to engage in a political world? And we need to ask it together. How are we as a church going to engage in a political world? These are complex questions with complex answers. And so there's no way we can cover all of it in just a couple of weeks. But I want us to look together at the scripture. I want us to look together at Acts chapter 16. Uh, and if you want to turn there, Acts 16.25. Uh, because I think there's some really important scripture here for us in terms of speaking into this moment, helping us think and pray about these kinds of questions. And so as you're, as you're turning to Acts 16, let me just give a little context for what uh, is happening here. Paul and Silas, who are followers of Jesus, are in the city of Philippi, and they're sharing the good news about Jesus. And we're told that they're on their way from one prayer gathering in the city to another when they meet this slave girl, and she's demon-possessed. And not only that, she's a fortune teller, and she's being used by some men to make money. And so it's a, it's a situation of human trafficking for economic gain. And so Paul, he, he, he casts this demon out of her. And, and she loses her ability to tell fortunes, which means that these men now lose their ability to make money off of her. And so as, as they see it, these wandering strangers who have come in town promoting some backward superstitious belief about some guy named Jesus, they, these guys had stolen from them. Uh, and they had violated their property rights. And so they call for them to be arrested. And so Paul and Silas are not only hauled into court and criminally charged, they're publicly stripped and harassed. They're beaten with a bundle of these wooden rods, and then they're locked in the city jail and put into leg stocks. And that's where we find them here in Acts chapter 16. So let me read from verse 25. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. 
Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. So I want to stop right there this week, and we'll, we'll finish looking at the rest of this passage next week. But I just want to focus on, on the fact that Paul and Silas here are facing persecution at the hands of political power for following Jesus. You know, as followers of Jesus in the United States, we are not facing outright persecution. But we are facing a major shift that impacts how we relate to political power. Tim Chester writes in his book, Everyday Church, that Christendom is drawing to a close. Christendom is the formal and informal alliance of church and state that has characterized much of Christianity since the conversion of Constantine in the 4th century. And it's this symbiotic relationship, he says, uh, in the West between the state and the church that's, that's basically defined uh, that relationship over the last number of centuries. And so some of the symbolism remains of that kind of relationship. But what he argues in the book is that Christianity no longer has a privileged status in our culture and political discourse of our nation. It's beginning to be overtaken by secularism and pluralism. And so what, what he's getting at is that you might say the political kind of value of a Christian worldview has been in steady decline, particularly in our country over the last several decades. And so what that means is that those around us are increasingly suspicious and even hostile to the place of biblical perspectives in politics. There's this increasing pressure that comes with that, too, to to abandon gospel-centered views of the world and to subsume even the gospel into other political ideologies. And so even though we're not subject to, to outright persecution, like Paul and Silas, like them, we must learn to engage with and interpret earthly political powers that are often at odds and even hostile to our faith. So this takes us back to our question of how do we as followers of Jesus engage in a political world? I think what we see here in this passage is that following Jesus in a political world means that we have to be shaped by at least two things. First, we have to be shaped by worship. And then second, as we'll see next week, we have to be shaped by mission. Following Jesus in a political world means being a people who are worshipful and a people who are on mission together. And so this morning, I want to focus on the worship piece. And again, next week, we'll look at mission. So first, following Jesus in a political world is about living as a people of worship, uh, people who worship the triune God. Paul and Silas here, they've been wrongly convicted, stripped, beaten, put in leg stocks. And yet, and yet, in verse 25, what it tells us is that even in this moment, they at midnight, in the middle of the night, are praying, it says, and singing hymns to God. I mean, can you imagine this moment 
they're in prison and yet they're singing. We're told the prisoners around them are listening to them sing praises to God. Later, the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? But what's important, I think, to see here is that evangelism here doesn't start with that question. It actually begins with the witness of the worshiping community. Paul and Silas are not strategically singing. They're not strategically praying. What they're doing is they're responding organically in their circumstances to what is real and true. And what is the most real thing to them in this moment? It's the gospel and the kingdom of God. And so they're they're living out their lives as gospel-shaped people. And those around them uh, can see it and they can hear it as they worship. Russell Moore uh, once said that Christian political engagement in the United States has often been a political agenda in search of a gospel useful enough to accommodate it. But this is not what we as a church have been called to. We've been called to be so defined by the gospel that we see everything through that lens. You see, the church as worshiping community is called to be a, a sign to the world. A sign that is shaping and forming us and revealing the power of the gospel to transform not only people, but to transform systems and institutions. That's because what you worship actually profoundly shapes who you are and how you engage with the world around you, both socially and politically. Your politics, in other words, is a window into what you worship. A few weeks ago, I came across a well-known pastor who was proclaiming an upcoming event And it was a passionate and powerful plea, an invitation for for repentance and prayer, something that I think we desperately need uh, in our nation right now. And so much of what he said uh, I found to be encouraging and that I would wholeheartedly support. But at the same time, there was something about it that just bothered me. And so I watched the video several times, and, and what I realized is there was no clear distinction between the nation and the church. In other words, the line between God's promises to the church and the destiny of America was very blurry. And in fact, I think this is, this is a characteristic of a lot of these kinds of conversations in our country right now. The line between faith and politics is very blurry. And, and I think it's because one of the greatest challenges the church is facing right now in our cultural moment is the idolatry a political ideology. The idolatry of political ideology. So what do I mean by that? Political scientist Max Skidmore uh, defines ideology as a form of thought that presents a pattern of complex political ideas simply in order to inspire action to achieve certain goals. In other words, ideologies attempt to offer us a simple and total explanation of the world and reality. And in a very real way, ideologies tell a story about what is true, about who we are and how we should live. In his book, Political Visions and Illusions, which I highly recommend, uh, David Coises writes, ideologies are modern manifestations of idolatry. They're about putting something else in the place of God. He goes on to say that while some aspects of every ideology may be good and true, ultimately they seek to replace God by replacing the Bible's redemptive story. They offer a counterfeit view of the world, complete with their own false revelation of creation and the fall and redemption. And all ideologies do this, Uh, whether it's secularism, feminism, communism, liberalism, conservatism, whatever it is, 
all ideologies offer a narrative about the purpose of life, the main problem in the world, how to fix it or how to find salvation, and then what a just and good world should look like. Now, this should immediately raise red flags for us as followers of Jesus. Why? Because we worship the God of truth and grace who has revealed not just a story, but the story right, of creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately the consummation when Jesus returns. And so we, we know that we're created. We're created for, for life with God, but there's a problem, and that problem is, is our sinful rejection and rebellion of God. And that in Christ, we can receive deliverance and salvation, and that ultimately our greatest hope is that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And so Paul and Silas, you see here in this moment, they, they know that story. They know the story. And it shaped them deeply. And it shaped how then they engaged with the political powers and ideologies of their day. So when they encountered a, a young girl enslaved to evil from idolatry and that's false understanding of the world, they prayed for her to be delivered from it. And when they were faced with political opposition and oppression, how did they respond? They, they responded with prayer and worship. And not only that, their main concern was not for their own rights or their own freedom. They, they, they stayed in the prison, even though the doors were open and, and they were free to go. They stayed. Why? Because their main concern was for the salvation of even their oppressor, the jailer. And for us, that, that sounds so strange. How is that possible? And it's possible because they had a vision of the world that assured them of what was real, more real than the prison cell they were locked in, more real than the ideologies and the political powers of the world. They knew the gospel, and they knew the one who had delivered them. They knew Jesus Christ. And so it shaped everything they did and everything they saw in the world. So the question for us, too, is how do we see the world? Do we really see the world through the lens of the gospel? Or do we see the gospel through the lens of our political convictions? Church, how do we see those around us? Do we see those around us as fellow followers of Jesus, as those who are in need of God's grace, or, or do we see them as political enemies? We may disagree, and we shouldn't fear vigorous, thoughtful debate. But at the end of the day, we have to ask, can I lock arms with a, a faithful follower of Jesus who's a Republican? Can I lock arms with a faithful follower of Jesus who's a, a Democrat? Can I lock arms with a faithful follower of Jesus who, who posted something in support of Black Lives Matter? Or who posted a selfie wearing a, a Make America Great shirt? Can, can I lock arms with people who are following Jesus but strongly disagree with me on the issue that matters the most to me? I would say how we answer those kinds of questions can be very revealing in terms of what we are actually worshiping. See, what our nation desperately needs is not a church with more political influence or new political strategies or more godly candidates. What our nation needs is a church fulfilling its call to be a sign, a church made up of people whose hearts have been so shaped by the gospel, so shaped by the worship of the triune God, a church that, that finds a way of life that makes the power of the gospel seem real and life-changing as opposed to the idolatrous ideologies of the world. A, a church that lives as a sign of the true beauty and justice, of the true salvation and deliverance, of true redemption found only in Jesus. The worshiping church is to be a sign to the world. And right now in our nation, the church is failing to be a sign. It's failing to speak and live prophetically, failing to reveal the power of the gospel. 
Too often we're more concerned with our rights and our, our, our sense of control than we are with furthering the kingdom of God. And we've given our hearts and our minds over to idols in pursuit of power and influence. And, and we need to repent. And many of us have been asking, God, what, what are you doing right now? What are you doing in the midst of COVID and racial unrest, economic uncertainty? And I love what Benjamin shared last week. He said, God's giving us a gift in this moment. As Benjamin shared, he, he said, God's bringing judgment a loving judgment, but judgment, judgment on what? Our idolatry. And then that judgment is God's grace because he's taking away our sense of control and the faith that we put in other things. He's exposing our idols and he's calling us to what? Back to himself. He's calling us back to himself to worship him and him alone. See, our hope does not rest in who gets elected in two months or what parties in control or what what laws get put on the books. Our hope rests in Jesus Christ. And the question is, do we really believe that? Do you really believe that? That he alone is worthy of our trust and our worship. To end, I want to invite us, just as God's people, uh, to seek him about this. I think God's inviting us to, to press in and to seek him about this. The truth is we all have idols. We all have idols. You see, we're, we're made to worship. We're created to worship. And sometimes we allow other things to creep in to that place that only God should occupy in our lives. And so I just want to give us a few practical things um, that I think will help us, especially over the next 60 days as we come into this election season, will help us to really seek the Lord and hear from him. And so here's what I ask you to do. First, be quick to pray. Be quick to pray. Let's ask God to expose the idols of our hearts. Ask him, what am I putting my trust in? Is what I think or feel in line with the gospel, with the redemptive narrative as it's revealed in scripture? You might ask yourself, why do I feel so strongly about this particular issue or this particular candidate? St. Augustine said that our hearts actually are restless until they rest in God. Ask the Lord, where am I restless right now? Restlessness of heart may be a sign of idolatry. And so let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us to do the work of repentance and to seeking out where these idols have taken root in our life and ask him to help us remove them. Repentance begins right here. It begins in our own hearts and then it moves outward. So I just invite you, be quick to pray. Take some time, maybe even set some time to fast and pray and seek the Lord. Second thing is be slow to post. Be slow to post. Uh, I would say spend more time in scripture than you do reading articles, listening to podcasts on social media or watching the news. For some of us, the disparity there is pretty extreme. The temptation is really strong. But what the world needs right now is not our advice or our opinions. It needs biblical truth. You see, through God's word, we encounter him and we hear from him. And so we start with what God says and what he thinks, not with our political platforms or pundits. And so by all means, uh, be informed. Uh, Look to thoughtful, substantive sources. But remember that when you immerse yourself in false narratives about reality, they will shape you. But the good news is that when you immerse yourself in God's word, it will transform you. And so let's be a people transformed by God's word. So be quick to pray. Be slow to post. And then the last thing I would say is just show more grace. Let's show a lot of grace to one another 
and to our neighbors. You know, political debate in our country has become so bitter and dehumanizing. The, the church here has an opportunity to do better. We need to resist the temptation to dehumanize people by reducing them to an issue or a political position. We need to live out 1 Peter 3.16, but answer them in a gentle way with respect. Keep your conscience clear. And so when you disagree with someone politically, I would just encourage you, ask yourself, what is my greatest hope for this person or for this group of people? Is it simply that they would agree with me or that they might adjust their behavior? Or is it they, they would know Christ and, and the hope and the freedom that only he can offer? So quick to pray, slow to post, and show more grace. Church, this is a, an incredible opportunity. This moment is an opportunity to let our hearts be recaptured by God, who alone deserves our worship. It's an opportunity to be a sign for Christ to the nations. As we end, I just want to pray the words of Psalm 96 over us as a worshiping community of Jesus Christ. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. What is followers of Jesus? Would you help us to worship you and you alone? Amen.